Thinking Basketball Podcast. My name is Ben. Welcome back to another episode. And today, Cody, I, I mean, there's so many things going on in the NBA that we could talk about, but I wanted to sort of take a step back for a second and evaluate where we are in the league in 2023. We've mentioned, for instance, offensive rating being at an all-time high. I, I think offensive rating, the league-wide average for offensive rating now is, is like, what, 113.5 or something like that over the last month. It's actually gone up a little bit. It's at 114. And as we've mentioned before on this show, offenses usually get a little bit more efficient throughout the season as the year progresses. So so who knows where we're going to end up? Maybe you'll have an offensive rating of 114 at the end of the year and be a below average team on offense. Maybe the best offense will be at 120. Um, but, you know, maybe there's reasons for this that extend beyond things like officiating and sort of the the general shape of the league and the effectiveness of the way teams are running offenses. That's kind of what's been going through my head for the last couple months. Interesting. So you think like you have some theories as to why the offense might be so high right now? Well, we've talked we've talked about like emphasis of, of officiating points and foul rates and and things of this nature. But I, I actually think they've done a pretty good job this year of taking out the like you're driving down the lane, the Devin Booker special, like you're driving down the lane and you just start flailing your arms and falling over as someone is running next to you, which is like a totally normal part of basketball. People run around the court next to each other. It's not uh, a foul where I grew up and they've taken all those things away. And yet offensive, you know, there's still a lot of free throws happening. Free throw rates are still relatively high and offenses are, more effective than ever. And my general theory, and we can talk about in detail some X's and O's and and sort of like what is actually going on under the hood. But my general theory about why offenses are so effective is they're just smarter. Teams are just running sets that are harder to guard. And I actually talked about this in, in Thinking Basketball, the book, all those years ago, where if you have a lot of great shooters on the court and they can move and you have space and areas for players to pass and access those shots, it's just incredibly hard to defend based on the rules of basketball because you can't run through a screen, right? You can't defend in certain ways physically. There's only certain legal guarding positions in terms of stopping cuts and drives and layups. And then the three-point shot, I mean, you know, there's a ton of real estate to cover uh, across the three-point line, and you have... All these guys, I mean, league average on like wide open threes, Cody, is like 37 something percent. You get a 37 percent three point shot in the half court possession. I mean, I'm no math major, but that's 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 a 111 offensive rating on your half court possessions. Right. So I think there's a lot of this stuff that's been going on in the last few seasons as teams have shifted into pace and space and embraced um, more movement and more shooting and a lot of trends coming in in terms of X's and O's from like Europe. And I just think the sets and the lineups that these guys are running, that the combination across the league just makes it so hard to guard. And 
you know, you notice this when you like try and break down each play. Cause I, you know, I try and take notes as I'm watching to, to keep track of the things I'm seeing and it becomes difficult. Cause I'm like writing down the thing that's actually happening on the ball. It's like, all right, this person's doing this thing, this thing, but I'm like, simultaneously the two people that are in the weak corner seem to be like spinning around each other a couple times and then maybe a third person comes over and i'm like i i I don't know what i'm keeping track of but everyone seems to be moving around a lot and you actually pointed it out in uh in the more thinking basketball youtube channel the more thinking basketball youtube channel breaking down the movement that the warriors have that there's this moment where it looks like luca actually doesn't make the right rotation but the reason for that is because there was kind of this this unorthodox cut or cut that we're not used to seeing that happened that kind of took the actual person's uh job away i don't know how to describe that exactly it, but it, I think, it made it confusing right yeah, like, yeah yeah it wasn't clear who was supposed to rotate down and then exactly. there was just confusion in a layup yeah yeah that is um that's uh one one play it's a one play video on our extra channel where we throw extra stuff and you can get full video podcast now it's called more thinking basketball and that is just one play about how that warrior's motion is so hard to guard for 24 seconds it's a two and a half minute video that honestly when i was making it is pretty condensed right it's like pretty tight but it's this 24 second possession where every couple seconds something is happening and I feel more of the NBA is kind of operating like this uh, around the league. I'm glad you mentioned the Warriors because, as I said in the Sacramento Kings video, and this is where this has really been brewing in my head for the last month, that that Kings video was really a... We, we started that video with the intention of saying the league-wide shift in X's and O's has taken on some of Golden State's principles that that we all see and know and are familiar with, all their movement, their split cuts, things like that. That's, you know, five, ten years ago, that wasn't common. And now it's much more common. Teams around the league borrow this. The other side of that was the Nuggets. The Nuggets with Jokic and that type of offense where you have a big playing a lot of handoff, two-man and three-man handoff actions. And there are plenty of teams um, that have been running offense with their big men up at the elbow for the last decade in some form or another. I mean, Mark Mark Gasol, even back when he was with the Grizzlies, uh, did a lot of that. And so you have things like the quote-unquote delay set where you have like a five out and you give it to the big man and he can get into a handoff or hit a cutter. So this this stuff has been in the league for the last decade or so. Um, but I feel like just that Nuggets offense and having him as the hub as a passer and a scorer, all those little two-man and three-man actions that they involve, like dribble at the corner, um, come back, get a handoff, flow into an empty side pick and roll. This is what the league is doing. And the league, in a way, is kind of putting this together. And I think no team epitomizes this better than the Kings. But, like, you can turn on the Indiana Pacers. And you'll turn on the Indiana Pacers. And, by the way, a uh, kind of a sneaky, fun team to watch because I don't think this generation of Pacers has, has been at the top of everyone's league pass rankings. And, you know, they're not they're not running away with uh, the fastest pace and most exciting offensive rating. But they're pretty fun watch this year. And you turn them on. And, like, the first play of the game is like, well, guy gets the ball on one side of the court. 
and it's going to take me about five minutes to describe everything because on the other side of the court, there's a screen away. The first guy coming off the screen can accept it or reject it. He cuts back door. He goes down and he sets a screen on the baseline. The guy on the baseline goes and hangs out in the paint. He's part of the Spain pick and roll. And we're only five seconds into the possession. This is just the first action. And it kind of flows from there. Um, And so I think between the spacing principles and the X's and O's and the movement and then the pace of everything, which, of course, we mentioned in the Kings video coming from seven seconds or less with Mike D'Antoni, that to me feels like it's in the DNA of the league now. Some teams have better personnel. Some teams have slightly better X's and O's. But goodness, these actions, how do you stop these actions? How do you stop these actions when guys shoot this well? I mean, I turned on the Grizzlies game the other day against the Hawks, which if you haven't seen Jaron Jackson, the, the block Panther, I mean, six six blocks in the first eight minutes of this game. That's a whole other thing. But I turned this game on. Cody, the Grizzlies like made their first seven threes like it was just warm-ups. And you're like, wait, you go back and watch a game just like from 15 years ago. Seventh, like Tyus Jones, little handoff, late clock, empty pick, and, oh, pop a three, it's good. They did that seven times in a row to start the game. It was normal. It was totally normal. So I, I just think it's, uh, yeah, it, it's it's very stop, hard to stop these offenses. And it's so interesting to think about it over the course of, like, the history of offense in the NBA. Like, you know, going through the history of it, especially during the summer, just dominated by bas- back-to-the-basket kind of guys. Like, you see decades worth of, like, you can't win unless you have a big man that you can just throw it down there, maybe draw a double team, maybe kick it out when we get to the 90s, when you get, like, Olajuwon, you get Charles Barkley, you get guys that are just, like, on their own, unstoppable down there. But then we kind of transitioned, where I feel like mostly in the 2010s, the truism, and I think we're still, like, in this era, like I don't know Mesozoic era type thing I don't know what the eras are called with basketball but like the era we're still maybe at the tail end of is the the truism was like if you don't have a lead forward wing that can get you a bucket you can't win and you know maybe that was true for a good chunk of the 2010s but I think like this this DHO centric this allowing your big man to flow the Bam Adebayos the Sabonises the Jokic's right it kind of flips all of that on your head where I think still a lot of people would say it's a truism that's like, you know what? You still need that one forward that can get you a bucket. You can just give it to him, clear out, do what you got. That's why Jimmy Butler's so so valuable. And like that is still valuable. But now there's like a very clear avenue that's like, you know, there's actually a space here where offenses are moving and I think will continue to move where we're going to see teams be more successful because you don't just need the ball in that one wing's hands. Yeah, the the even before that, there was some period in the 2000s where hero ball, mm. right, yep. was was worshipped, and it's actually it might be weird if if you haven't read Thinking Basketball and you pick up a copy now, like seven years after it was published, maybe eight nine years after the chapter was written, and you read about this section on like hero ball, you're like why is Ben talking about? hero ball who plays like this and it's like that's the point for a long time in that period late 2000s early 2010s you had more isolation in the offense and especially when sort of the going got tough when the pressure cooker was amplified when you got into the gauntlet of the playoffs and late like last three minutes clutch possessions people were really fixated on this because it felt like what you need is a guy that you can clear out Kobe Bryant Paul Pierce, Tracy McGrady, I'm sure I'm for Carmelo Anthony, I'm sure I'm forgetting a, a handful of other big names. But you clear out 
and that guy can go get you the legendary bucket, right? He can go get you two by getting in his bag, making a ton of moves, and scoring. And one, that that was never sort of all it was cut out to be. Um, but two, I think people figured out it was never all that it was cut out to be, that those possessions weren't actually super effective, and that if you could actually just generate the most valuable offensive possession each time down. It's sort of like a Brad Stevens truism. Like every, Just play it possession to possession. Rick Carlisle with the 2011 Mavericks, I thought they, they embodied this. Like We're down by 15, we're up by 15, it doesn't matter. Each possession needs to be valued and we need to get a good shot. How do we do that? And the more coaches have thought about that, the more experimentation has sort of trickled upwards from smaller leagues, from European leagues, from Australia, from the Middle East, from college, you you take these X's and O's concepts that work for players that don't have NBA skills, and then you give them to Steph Curry, and you give them to Dame Lillard, and you give them to Nikola Jokic, and you give them to Giannis Antetokounmpo. It's like, now you have a superhero with a superpower that's part of this. Maybe Maybe some teams you have two of them on the court at the same time. How, how, how do you stop this? So I don't know where the end is in terms of where we're going to settle. Like we were at 1.07 points, give or take a few, a 107 offensive rating for like decades. That was like the, the sort of equilibrium, this stabilization point of offensive effectiveness in basketball. And now we've just shifted upward and I, I, I don't know where it stops. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It completely throws off my heuristic. Like when I look at a player and it's like they're uh, offensive, like when they're on the court, when it's like 117, in my mind, I'm still like, oh, that's really, that's an excellent offensive rating. <laughs> but now it's like, it's, that's good. Like, it's fine. We're not going to complain about it. But this actually, I, I was thinking about this because you bring up guys like Steph Curry, you bring up the Warriors, these revolutionary types of players, these revolutionary teams that kind of, they, they change things that harbinger of things to come, right? And I was trying to think, I'm like, all right. Is it possible to try and figure out like what's next offensively? Like we've we've clearly shown that historically offenses change, right? And there's there's no stopping change. It's going to keep changing. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to pitch this question to you because I really don't know this. And I was thinking about this. Do you think that change comes from a revolutionary system first, or do you think change comes from a revolutionary player that lands in the right? situation because when i think about it it kind of seems like it's like all right as a coach i can start scheming things in a new revolutionary way that's going to change stuff but ultimately we didn't say huge changes until steph curry showed up and all of a sudden it's like oh this is actually possible so do you think it comes at the team level or the player level first boy that's a really interesting question because when you started i was like i was i was like sell me sell me on how the player would be the key factor there because there are principles that kind of translate and are adopted. It's a copycat league thing. You know, um, the Suns start running pistol or their kind of hurry up offense. And again, we're on radio, so we don't need to uh, get get too into the weeds of X's and O's. But just think of like you run down the court 
and you want to have one side of the floor cleared out. You want your spacing principles there, and then you can get into a quick two-man game. You can you quick step up screen, empty side pick and roll. You can flow into a bunch of other stuff, and everyone just started running that. But you're bringing up an interesting point, which is if you did that with a team that won 38 games every year, and you had an offensive system that if you just copied everyone else, you would have won 28 games it may not stick. No one, you know, people might not steal from you, in other words. They might know about it. They might be like, that's cute. Kind of like the way that the Utah Jazz ran the same like play with Jerry Sloan and John, uh, John Stockton and Carl Malone for like 10 years in a row. And it's not that no one took that play. It's that people knew that play existed, whether you had this sort of cross screen in the paint to try to get Malone a paint touch and try to set up the pick and roll with Malone and Stockton, or you had some little flex screen cut. It's like everyone knew what this was, but they weren't, they didn't win five championships in a row. They weren't uh, setting records. Now people didn't know about offensive rating and, and, you know, pace and things like that back in the nineties, but they, they weren't setting records for points per game. So, I don't know. Teams didn't teams didn't think to copy that despite some success. But when you come along with Phoenix, do you need Steve Nash? Do you need that level of like superpower at the helm to demonstrate to everyone else, hey, even a lighter version of this. Like you can you can have Jameer Nelson come off the bench and run this play and it's going to be way better than giving it to Mikhail Petrus and having him isolate like he's a lesser version of Carmelo Anthony. That that kind of thing, right? Yeah, and that's why I kind of lean the players, because I was thinking Steve Nash. Like, if seven seconds or less was in the hands of any other point guard that's not Steve Nash, like, sure, like, could Chris Paul have done seven seconds or less? I mean, he's never been, like, a pace pusher, right? But it's at least got, like, he can pull up, he can make some good passes, but then, like, it evolves again. It's like, yeah, but what if we ran a spread pick and roll, and it was someone that's built like LeBron James running it? And all of a sudden, everyone's like, oh, we need to do spread, pick, and roll like this. But then people learn, like, really quickly <laughs> that LeBron is, like, a one-of-one one that's able to do this. And it's like, oh, you still need that wing to do something. And then Nikola Jokic runs around. Like, he shows up. And it's like, yeah, but what if I'm seven feet, unstoppable in the paint, and the best passer of all time? Then what? Then does that... <laughs> then what are we going to do? Yeah. He's shooting 61% in the <laughs> in the mid-range this year. It, it doesn't make sense. We can try to get back to him later maybe because i i just have um well well I'll, I'll bring him up in a second with something else i want to say but but i think your point about lebron is really fascinating because when lebron started to emerge um we're, we're gonna go back in the time machine ladies and gentlemen we're, we're gonna get we're gonna get getting our deloreans together and we're gonna go back 16 17 years to like the mid 2000s and Le, lebron gets into the playoffs the Cavs aren't very good and there's a last second situation. I want to say it's against the Wizards. And he passes in the last second to a wide open teammate. Maybe Danielle Marshall. I don't know. My memory doesn't work. And I'm just pulling this out of thin air right now. But this, this, this was a big deal back then. And he's criticized for passing on the last shot. And, and kind of like he might have said it. Some coach might have said it. Maybe some more balanced broadcaster might have said it. You pass in that situation to get a wide open look because when you're doubled or tripled, it is a very high percentage shot, all things being equal, to have a good shooter with a wide open jumper at the end of the game 
versus LeBron being triple teamed. And there was this idea, this, this hero ball thrust, this individuality of scoring. That's really what I'm getting at. This, this scoring focus for an individual to say LeBron needed to be the one to take that shot. And to me, that's a microcosm of the shift that's happened because he followed Jordan. Jordan often took that shot. Now, now the irony is if you go dissect Jordan film, he's one of the great playmakers ever, um, but that gets lost in the shuffle. So LeBron doesn't take the shot. LeBron plays this very dual threat. I can kill you with my shooting. I can kill you with my passing. And he does score more than, say, Magic Johnson playing this style. He also passes more than Michael Jordan playing this style, but it's a different game. It's spread pick and roll. It's put three-point shooters around him. And, of course, we see the birth of heliocentrism and things like that. But the general idea is that at some point there is a shift between saying, we need our best player to score and have this sort of like isolation hero ball game and be able to pass a little bit. And the shift was, we actually need our best players to be dual threat scorers and passers at all times when they have the ball. Because when you have these players all over the court, they're extremely difficult to, to stop, especially when you start adding in opportunities every few seconds with your X's and O's, your spot ups, your cuts, your screens, your off ball movement. And that to me feels like just this generational divide between watching the game today and the best players today and watching like 2006. I'm glad you brought up Michael Jordan here because people always, I mean, not people. I think it's pretty clear that the hero ball generation came from Michael Jordan. It was this idea of trying to, to emulate the famous fadeaway to get to your spot and just knock down shots. And like Jordan was the king of that. He was so good at hitting those shots, but we can't forget that someone other than him hit the last shot to win two different championships. You know, back in 97, we have him passing to Steve Kerr to hit the game-winning shot to beat the Jazz. In 93, I don't think he makes the pass. I think it's Horace Grant's Horace Grant that makes the pass. But John Paxson hits the last shot to beat the Suns, right? And so, like, that's kind of lost in the sauce. So I think there's this weird thing, too, where there is a player, there is an offensive system, and it's used... But it's not like fully realized. It's like, all right, you got part of the picture, but you didn't get the full picture. And it also bleeds into defense, too, because like with LeBron, for instance, yeah, you start blending in the offense and defense. And you have guys like James Harden, who's, you know, tremendous all time offensive player. But what does LeBron have that Harden doesn't have? LeBron is also like one of the best wing defenders ever at that level. So you can bring it on both of those levels. So it's like you kind of forget that there's more to it than just the thing that stands out, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I think that makes uh, that makes total sense, and I think this this sort of bias is still in the game a little bit today. When you see people criticize guys that don't quite have the same scoring volume, um, and celebrate guys that can get into that like it's a last second shot, can you give me a spinning fadeaway at the buzzer or whatever? Um, I I I have a trivia question for you oh yes please who right now in the national basketball association what player has the highest on-court offensive rating meaning their team when he's on the floor has the best offensive rating and i will tell you just as a hint as of today this numbers change every day and things like that who knows when uh you know what what they'll be when you're listening to this at home but as of today, it's 126 points per 100 possessions. That's the team's offensive rating when this player is on the court. Who who has that mark? I'm gonna I'm gonna take a guess here because I looked this up maybe a month ago, 
and I think the answer was like 128. I'm going to say it's Jokic. It's the same as it was a month ago. Okay. It's it's Nikola Jokic. Um, one, that's kind of crazy to me because Michael Porter Jr. hasn't been playing and Jamal Murray is still kind of stuck in line. I'll, I'll give him like second gear. I'll give I'll give Jamal Murray like second gear at this point. He's there. There are some flashes and the pieces are coming back. But I mean, uh, still still, you know, working his way back from injury. So on one hand, one, that that's just nuts. Two, on the other hand, I'm not surprised because, you know, we're talking about one of the greatest offensive players of all time. But three, the thing that made me think of this is this discussion about how that player doesn't necessarily have to average 37 points per game. As of recording this, there are an incredible uh, nine players, nine players, Joel Embiid, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Luka Doncic, Shea Gildas-Alexander, Steph Curry, Dame Lillard, John Morant, Donovan Mitchell, and Kevin Durant, and Jason Tatum and Anthony Davis just missed, and Anthony Davis at this pace is, is going to join the club. Nine players at 30 points per 75. So we've talked about this before. Eight of those players are above league average in efficiency. Just a, a ton of monster scoring this season. And one guy who's not in that club is Nikola Jokic. He's not too far behind, but you don't, you don't look at him and go like, oh, he's clearly the best or most prolific scorer in the sport. It's this combination of just insane bonkers efficiency as a scorer that you mentioned a couple episodes back, I think about a month ago, how rare his scoring and efficiency combination is, and then the passing. And I don't think anything could epitomize the success of modern basketball more than an offensive player being hyper-efficient with his own offense all over the court whenever he calls it up, or hyper so hyper-efficient with his passing that you literally have to ask, is this the best passer we've ever seen? I mean, we were talking right before we recorded about how any Jokic game you bring up, like his fifth best pass in that game would be most NBA players' best pass of their career. It's uh, so yes, I think I think he epitomizes what we're talking about perfectly. I mean, again, you go to like the 70s or 80s and once in a while, a big man will get it and dribble up and you'll hear like the commentator be like, find a guard, big man, find a guard. And like yesterday was he? Yes. I don't even know when it was. All of these games blend together, Ben. But whenever the Nuggets were playing the Wizards, there's a point where Jokic, I mean, this is like a traditional pass he makes. This isn't even like the only time he's done almost this exact pass, but he gets the defensive rebound. He's bringing it up the court. He sees one of his teammates streaking ahead, bounce passes it 60 feet away for a dunk. And like people aren't just like exploding when they watch this. And I'm like, you don't understand that this is a seven footer who's like 270 pounds making this pass. And I know we bring up Jokic a lot and people are like, oh, you're so annoying. But like at the end of the day, Ben, <laughs> I don't know about you. I, I'm a huge NBA fan. I celebrate the game. And when I'm watching quite literally maybe the best at least right now, regular season offensive player ever, I'm going to keep shouting it from the mountaintops because I see it and it it, bl- it blows my mind going back and watching all this historical stuff and seeing Jokic. It blows my mind. Do you get voice memos on like Twitter? Is that what, do they send you the voice memo? Is that how you know they sound like that? Yeah, that's exactly it. It's, I, I don't know if it's the same person every time, but you talk about Jokic. I'm like, okay, let's, let's relax for a second. Let's watch the game and enjoy this. Oh my goodness. Um, yes, but it it's... It applies to so many different players and teams because this combination of movement and sort of spacing the floor and using handoffs and using two and three man actions constantly um, 
and then the pace, these, these keys that we hit on in the Kings video. I don't know if I explicitly said it earlier, by the way. We were going to do that for the league, and then it was just like, after a certain point in time, we started watching the Kings, and we were like, oh, the Kings... The Kings just do this. This is the Kings offense. The Kings offense is like one part one part Jokic, one part Golden State, one part Steve Nash. Oh look, we're good. Um, and of course they've they've got cool personnel to kind of pull that off, but that's the point. The point is uh, your point maybe Cody that it starts with someone like Jokic, but then if you get like a Jokic light with Sabonis, you can run the same actions. Um, it starts with someone like Curry and Clay. But if you get a guy like Kevin Herter and movement shooters, I've talked a lot about movement shooters over the years and how underrated I think they are, how valuable they are when you look at, say, plus minus data and you just look at a bunch of it and you see like, oh, why is J.J. Redick really? And oh, look, it's like Kyle Korver. He's up there. And um, all these kinds of players like this, there aren't that many, but the movement shooters that exist on teams and how you can run little actions around them and how their their gravity and their movement kind of makes it makes you just a little bit harder to guard all the time they always have nice plus minus data and so the cool thing about the kings and the the kevin herter component and the sort of steph curry derivative is now you're trying to get your movement shooter to also blend playmaking and blend live dribble actions. So he's kind of more like a hybrid player. So he's not just a specialty guy. It's not like he's only doing catch and shoot. It's not like he can only perform off the handoff to shoot. It's like he's a threat to shoot or he's a threat to flow right into one of these pick and rolls. He's a threat to flow right into one of these three-man handoff games where he himself can make a live dribble pocket pass or he knows how to make that skip read to the corner three-point shooter because the floor is spaced and two other guys just set some screens or did some cuts and float out to the corner and the defense is like, oh, there's a pick and roll. We have to react. So it's all these things coming together that on a night-to-night basis when I watch the games, I'm like okay, yeah, I don't know what the defenses are supposed to do because it looks like they're doing a pretty good job and uh, it's it's 74-67 at halftime. You know, and I'm sure we're going to get a, a deeper Grizzlies talk at some point because there's just there's so many things to talk about there. But Desmond Bain is a great example of what you're talking about. Like, we always knew he was a great shooter. He's always been a great shooter. He's been good with his off-ball stuff. But all of a sudden, that on-ball juice is expanding more and it just makes him that much more unguardable. Like, all of a sudden, when you can hard close out on someone, it's like, I'm going to chase him off the line. But then if chasing him off the line in itself is an issue, you can't do that anymore. you got to change up your, your defensive strategy. But if we can go back a little bit, this is all really interesting because we kind of started with positing that maybe revolution starts with the player. But when you talk about movement shooter, a guy that is just, you know, completely changes an offense. I'm thinking about all the Reggie Miller, right? Reggie Miller in the 90s and how valuable his scoring punch to the fact that he's one of the best scorers of all time. But from the 90s, it's not like everyone in the 2000s became Reggie Miller. Everyone became Michael Jordan. Like, obviously, Michael Jordan is Michael Jordan, but it's not like Reggie himself started a revolution of these off-ball guys, right? So there kind of needs to be a combination of, like, the right player, the right zeitgeist, the right offensive scheme, the right timing, and then I think, like, somehow that concoction, that mix of everything, is where we start seeing offenses and schemes get pushed to the next level. Yeah, and in the case of Reggie Miller... And certainly, you know, Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, and the Warriors today, it's hard to sell people on running around a lot. It's I, I think it I think it's a challenge. It's like you have to you have to run your tail off the entire game. And 
you need to work like a dog and you know it's a heck of a lot easier just to stand on the wing and get the ball and start playing with the ball and go into your move that way so that combined with mill in miller's case and we've talked about this before i think in his episode over the summer so we don't need to rehash it but people didn't realize uh they didn't realize how effective it was so it's like this thing where they're like, ah, he's only an 18 or 20 point per game score in the regular season. We don't really have playoff stats, so we don't notice that he averages like 24 or 25 in the playoffs. And we don't really look at, a, we don't even know what efficiency is. We just look at field goal percentage. And because he took threes and a lot of free throws, it's like, ah, he's a guard and he's got like a solid field. I don't even know what it is because I don't look at field goal percentage really, but maybe it's like 46%. And the gold standard of guard shooting is at a field goal percentage uh, point of view is like Michael Jordan at 54%. So why would we even really think of these two things as being in the same ballpark? And so what you get in the next generation is like Ray Allen runs around, <laughs> Rip Hamilton runs around, but it's, it's doesn't, it's different than what we're seeing with Steph Curry, you know, the Warriors working on six finals appearances and, and four championships. So maybe you do need that combination. I don't know if it's one coming first. I think it's probably just a combination. Yeah. You know what we need more of, Ben? We need more Kobe-like Cowbell? stories. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> Explore the studio space, Ben. We need more Kobe-like stories. Like anytime Kobe comes up, there's always like the, the maniacal stories of his workouts, right? And we just don't have those as much anymore. But one popped up recently, Ben. There's been a story that's circulating that that connects with this. And I feel like the Steph Curry workout stories have been popping up. And I forgot when it was, but I saw it was like renowned, not renowned, but it's like an NBA player who gets minutes tried to do a Steph Curry workout with him and he was puking in the first five minutes. And I read that. I'm like, we need more of this. Like this kind of myth making, and we need myth making around being in really good shape, right? I even remember like Rip Hamilton, he'd be like, Oh, I always run barefoot through the sand. That's my secret. I'm just running on the sand barefoot all the time, and that's why I'm in such good shape. And you go back and you watch Rip Hamilton, it's like, you know what, dude? It's like Liver King. Like, sure, you're on Instagram saying this, and you know, at the end of the day, I'm gonna believe you because what you're doing is working out just fine. But we we need more myth making around movement shooters. Liver King. Yeah. Yeah, that was quite the reference that we, you we could expunge you just threw that in there from the record. Yeah, we, we just expunge that from the record. Um, Kevin Garnett, I think, liked to run on the beach in Malibu in the sands mm. over the summer. I think I think that was also a thing. But no, that, that that's a good point because feats of endurance aren't really valued in the sport. I don't think it's 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 you use the word zeitgeist earlier. I was going to say Gesundheit, but it would have been too much German for one episode. But like like feats feats of endurance are not really part of the zeitgeist, right? Yeah. You don't you don't say like it's crazy that this guy. I mean, I, I think people worship someone like Allen Iverson for how much he played because relative to other people in his era, he did play more. And he played in a way that you like you could just see him constantly falling down and flying all over the court. Now, part of that is that he was smaller, right? So it's a lot easier to move 170 pounds around the court than 240 pounds around the court. Um, but I do think he does he does get flowers for being kind of an Iron Man and, and playing a lot. But a lot of other guys, you know, it's not something. It's not something we talk about. Like Le- LeBron, for instance, for his size, just his conditioning, the, the amount he's played in the playoffs when you when you pull up his basketball reference, 
And it's kind of alarming, you know, how many, how many minutes he's, he's played in the postseason. Um, but you know, that's we're, we're, we're getting, we're getting sidetracked here. We're getting sidetracked. I think, I think the main, uh, sort of point that connects to endurance for me is how, and it segues into something we should actually discuss is how much the guys move today, Mm -hmm. throw on a game 20 or 30 years ago, and they just move so much more today than they did back then. And, you know, I've, I've participated in a fantasy draft all time thing once or twice. And there's a certain point where even like the last couple of years, I started finding it to be untenable because you go back and watch some of those teams and you're like, I have no idea how this person would move in a defense right now. And it makes defenses just nearly impossible. Like you said, I watched that Luca play where maybe he was supposed to be the one uh, in your in your more thinking basketball video. Maybe he's supposed to be the one to rotate and contest it, but I'm not really sure. I, I had to watch the play multiple times and I'm still not even sure how it was supposed to be. So it just, it, it makes offenses better, but it also makes offenses better because it makes defenses harder, right? It's like pushing from both sides here to to elevate how good offenses are. Here, here's, a, here's a tweet on movement, and I think it's worth pausing and discussing this point explicitly. It's basically saying that uh, Michael Jordan, that he's he's the example, Michael Jordan at 39 playing 91 possessions a game for 80 games compared to a star today that plays in a 95 possession. So the pace, sorry, I, 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 I should translate this. Um, the pace in the early 2000s, the average pace was like, 91 possessions a game and today it's say in the high 90s or I think this year it's actually right around 100 so what what the sort of idea is is that well is it isn't it more taxing on your body to play 40 minutes a game at a pace of 92 than to play 32 minutes a game at a pace of 99 like you're still playing more possessions back then so don't more possessions mean that it's more taxing on your body um and my answer would be an emphatic resounding no because it actually matters what's happening in those possessions and i think that's part of the big shift in basketball is guys go out on the court now and they sprint and they run and they cut and so the amount of movement that's taking place the amount of lateral movement, cuts and change of directions, change of pace, starting and stopping, things like that, uh, and sort of that entire batch of what's happening, like that's that's the exertion on your body versus just the number of minutes. Because you could play 48 minutes a game, and this happened in the 60s. Wilt Chamberlain played 48 minutes a game, but a lot of that is running from free throw line to free throw line and just stopping and waiting. On defense, waiting in the paint because you don't want to come out and stretch yourself and there's no pick and roll and three-point line and things like that. And then on offense, going to one of the blocks and hoping you get just, you know, post parking yourself on the block and hoping you get the ball. And if you get the ball, maybe you make a quick move or you pass it to some cutters or things like that. So it's not the number of possessions. It's not the number of minutes. It's what's happening on those possessions. And each NBA possession now, the 10-person the dance that's taking place on the court from a tactical X's and O's standpoint is just so much farther ahead than where we were like 20 years ago and that's not to say that the players 20 years ago you know all the best players play today or anything like that it's just this is the arms race that we've gotten to and so the exertion on these guys bodies 
to play that style for 36 minutes is grueling. And that's why you see a team like the Memphis Grizzlies, who's just like, who's the most valuable player in the Memphis Grizzlies? Wow. Was that, was, was that a question you just, you just asked? Do you want me to answer it? I'm, well, I'm just saying, like, they're so deep. Yeah. And people get injured and they just keep winning. And they have a bunch of good players. And it's not, it doesn't feel like a traditional structure. And I think it's both the flowing sort of options that they have on offense. They run, they run decent stuff on offense that allow, empowers different players on the court from John Morant as the centerpiece to you mentioned Desmond Bain to uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. Um, Taylor Jenkins has talked about how he wants all of his pieces on the court to be playmakers. This is something that's come up in recent podcast episodes as well. Uh, Mike D'Antoni himself mentioned it where he's like, if you have the ball, you're the point guard. And that's a big shift. That's part of this shift from if you have the ball, can you score? And that's right. 1980s, 1990s, 2000. Antoine Carr. Okay, he can have the ball in the post because he's got a post game. He's got a little jumper. He's got a jump hook. He's the big dog. We throw it into him. He gets some buckets. But now, whether you're the center, the power forward, the, the actual nominal point guard, it doesn't matter. When you're put in these positions, goes back to what we said about Kevin Herter, you have the ball, you're the point guard, you're the decision maker. And so Memphis empowers a lot of players like this on offense. Taylor Jenkins wants all the players to be able to uh, interchange and flow and create in the right situations that they're put in. And then on defense, like, yes, J- you know, Jaron Jackson Jr., he might he looks like a Kim Olajuwon lately. I, I, I mean, that's great, but like, he misses time and they're still good. You know, they just have a bunch of really good players. So they all play like 30, 25 to, to 32 minutes a game or something like that. And I don't know who the most valuable is. To your point, too, about just exhaustion and the amount of running it takes. I think I want to I want to credit correctly here. I'm pretty sure it was Seert and Kyle on the answer talking about this. And I think they were saying that the league has been trending younger, right? As we keep going, the league keeps getting younger and younger. And if you go back to the 90s, 80s, it, you can see players still being effective, but still not being particularly athletic. And I think there's also an aspect of like your physicality, right? Players have to slim down now. Like a slimmer build is actually more valuable than being like 35-year-old and bulking up so you can go in the paint and bang around with a shack for a few minutes, right? Like that archetype doesn't really exist anymore. It's never a time that's like, all right, we're going to sign this guy who's like put on some muscle. He's 36 years old and he's going to really, really rough it up in the paint. That's not really valuable anymore. But that literally did have some value in the past, right? And you can also take like, you, you, you always want to space the floor out. But now, the way that they're running offenses, the way that the NBA runs offenses, you don't even need to be a stretch big to be able to stretch the floor. If you have the right personnel around you and the right actions, if you're running DHOs, if you're dribble hand, doing dribble handoffs, and you have a good enough shooter coming off, or you have somebody that's quick enough coming off the bounce there, you need to have the bigs defender up there as well, defending at the level, because that player's going to pull up from three. Right. So it completely changes the geometry of the court and you can use these different skill sets in ways that we've never been able to see those skill sets be used. Yeah. uh, The the sort of ubiquity of good shooters just changing this entire equation is ridiculous. I'm, I'm just looking at our board here that we share with subscribers, patreon.com slash thinking basketball. And there are. 100 and Cody 151 players 
in the NBA who in the last three years hit 35% of their open threes or more. 151 players. Again, 35% on an open three is what? 52.5% on a two. It's 1.05 points. So league average half-court possession, uh, or at least per play, if you look at synergy, the league average half-court play is worth one point per play. So in the half-court, if you can generate an open three at 35%, you're well above average half-court offense. And there are now 151 rotational players in the NBA. And this is just with our qualifying minutes. That's 151 out of like 250-something players. It's like 60% of the league can do this. So when you have that level of shooting out on the court, it completely unlocks that. And then something that we'll talk about a little bit more, I think, in some upcoming video work on the Thinking Basketball YouTube channel is this idea that even if you're not a shooter now, the X's and O's and the tactics and the strategies allow you to be a threat behind the three-point line. They allow you to attack. We talked about this with Zion. I think Zion is the prime example of this. Like, he spots up behind the three-point line, but he's rarely shooting. And if you don't want to cover him and you want to rotate like you normally rotate to handle a breakdown, to handle a penetrator, to shift over toward pick and roll on one side of the court, Zion is behind the three-point line, spotted up on the other wing, He's going to cut at the right time and come downhill into that space, and he's deadly. And there's a bunch of different sort of variants that teams use around the league where even if you aren't one of these 36, 37, 38% three-point shooters on your open shots, you're still dangerous because of the tactics and the X's and O's that are just, at this point, just basically league-wide. It, it, it's incredible. It really is. And I don't, we're not quite to this um, complete egalitarian sort of utopia that we're talking about. I'm sure we'll get closer to it. It's the best it's probably ever looked here. But it's almost like the offensive philosophy now is like, who is in the best position to score? And we're going to make sure we get every player in the best position to score versus let's get the ball to this guy who's going to create the best position for him to score. And I think that's a huge tactical and philosophical shift that's happened in the last, I don't know, decade. I just want to point out before we get out of here that the Pacers, who we mentioned in this episode, uh, they played the Nets recently. And the offensive ratings in this game, the Nets had a 131 offensive rating. The Pacers had a 129 offensive rating. Brooklyn had two 40-point quarters. The Pacers had two 38-point quarters. And the final score of that game, Cody, final score of that game was 136 to 133 in regulation. And then in their next game at home, so the same, the same fans, the fan base watched that game. And then in their next game at home, they played the Miami Heat. And when you play the Miami Heat, things like this happen. The score of that game was 87 to 82. 80, 87 to 82. So uh, if you're a math wizard, you've already figured out this incredible thing that I think we, we, we should close the show with. One night, the two teams scored 269 points in Indiana. And the next game in Indiana, the two teams scored 169 points. And that's just normal now for the NBA. It's actually rare to have a game that's, that's low scoring. Um, but a 100-point swing from, from one night to the next because most of the time, offenses can just be that deadly.
Yeah, exactly. And I still, you know, I'll still watch a game and think it's like 2006 when I was like, you know, a youngster sitting on my parents' couch, throwing on TNT or whatever and seeing the game. And I'd be like, all right, each team's probably going to score about 25 points a quarter. That makes sense. And anytime teams now go over 25 in my head, I'm still automatically like, wow, this is going to be a high scoring game. But like, that's that's just not even close to the case. Yeah, it goes back to what I was saying about watching these games and thinking, hey, this this team's pretty good defensively. And it's like 37-32 after the quarter. And you're like, man, this this must be like inflation as you get older, where you're like, you're like $20 for a pizza. That's, <laughs> that's a lot of money for a pizza. Like coaches who have been around for a while must feel weird going to the bench and being like, all right, guys, great defensive quarter. We held them to 34. That's fantastic. But, but that's kind of where we are. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, you mentioned Utopia. This is an open-ended discussion. We'll probably circle back to this in in a year or two, um, just to catch to like check in on things. But it's it's an offensive sort of playground out there, just in terms of passing, shooting, movement, screening, like constant X's and O's, where you have these like just actions that are just torturous to guard, and they're honestly they're just being adopted around the league like like i said you throw on one team that you haven't watched and you're like oh they're the first seven seconds of their possession is just grueling and we haven't even gotten to the good stuff yet so so let me ask you this was kind of the question i posed earlier but do you have any sense of where you think offenses can go from here like what do you think projecting out offenses will look like five years from now ten years from now i think there's probably a little bit more to squeeze out I think that's one thing. I do think some changes in the officiating always kind of bump it one way or the other. So when the officiating, it goes back to the video we did over the summer, when the officiating allows the offense to initiate more contact or allows more movement screens, um, I should phrase that better, more moving screens, (laughs) things of that nature. And then like we've seen a crackdown on ball handling lately right like these travel calls and these palming calls if they were to really crack down on all of those things i think just sort of it it has to have an effect where it brings the entire league average down a little bit and then when you allow it to go the other way it brings the league average up but we're talking about something that if even if they officiated the game more like it was 10 years ago there's not a giant gap in the officiating today and the officiating in like 2015. And I think the league average offensive rating in 2015 off the top of my head was closer to 105 hmm. or 106, something like that. It wasn't particularly high. It was still in that era of like, we go a little under 107, we go a little above 107, we go a little under 107. Oops, we had the Pistons. We, 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 we got to allow guys to move again. Um, there was a lot of that. And I think if you took the offenses now and gave them those exact same rules, they would be a couple, they would be, you know, 110, 111, they would be ahead of that by a decent amount. Like 105 to 110 is a huge jump. And offenses are so good, frankly, that, you know, we're, we're now seeing like two point jumps in offensive ratings from one year to the next. And we're like, that wasn't that big of a deal. <laughs> it used to be the biggest jump ever, but it's like, that, that wasn't that we were, Oh, next year we'll be at 116. That's so cute. This team, Cody, this team has a terrible offensive rating. They have a 115 offensive rating for most of basketball, like three point era. 115 was the gold standard of offensive rating. There was no team. Um, 115, six, 
I believe the 87 Lakers hit. That was the highest offensive rating ever in league history until like the end of the two, like 2018, 2019, 2020, somewhere in there. And now we've just, we've just blown past it. So I expect, I expect even, even more X's and O's. I expect even more kind of intense creativity and movement and screening and, and some of these things. Um, but I think we're getting close because we're empowering players to pass and make decisions with live dribbles. We're allowing all five players on the court to do this. There's an entire generation, to borrow Mike Prada's term, that's spaced out native. So they've been practicing all these techniques and shooting and shooting threes is normal for them. And right now we out of 151 players, as I mentioned, at 35% on open threes. You get an entire league of guys that can shoot 36, 37% on open threes. I do imagine there's a few more offensive rating points to squeeze out and then what does it mean what what is what does amazing defense look like you got to get back to me on that one i don't know that's a whole nother episode i know that's that's my question after all this is is there going to be a dip again and is defense going to somehow change to to counter this no just scout the way jaron jackson defends and that's what that's what you want five of those players on the court bob's your uncle you're good. Speaking of Uncle Bob, if you want to support this show directly, uh, head on over to patreon.com slash thinking basketball. Cody's still trying to figure out how Uncle Bob relates because Uncle Bob is like a donor. He's like, uh, you know, what's it, what's it called? What was it called in Great Expectations? What The ben- the benefactor. Wasn't there a hidden benefactor in Great Expectations? I can't. You can't expect me to make literary references like this. That's that's my that's my professional job, Ben. I, that, I can't expect you to make the actual thing you do all day besides this. I can't expect you to have knowledge about it. I'm off the clock of talking about books. So this is like a protest. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. They, my, my, yeah. my district needs to pay me if I'm going to be talking about books here. I get it. So you're like, we're reading Great Expectations right now, but I will not I will not weigh in on this analysis without further payment. I will not say whether or not there are expectations and whether or not they're great or bad. Uh, patreon.com slash basketball. This is, this is clearly the most effective outro we we've ever had on this show. Um, we have monthly, monthly live Q and A's that are a lot of fun and the, the stats board that we keep referencing. That's our, that's our new tool that's available for top tier subscribers. It's got all sorts of wild, fun stuff from the best shooters in the league to impact metrics to a handful of defensive metrics, team stats, uh, and a ton more. So thanks for listening all the way through on this one, wherever you are. And as always, I do hope you are having a great day.